Welcome to this week's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is my colleague Joe Healy, and we will be joined in a little bit by UCLA coach John Savage, going to talk a little bit about the Bruins and about the Pac-12 here as we continue with our uh, our previews ahead of opening day, which is now a week away. But before we get into all of that, got to let you know that the Baseball America College Podcast is presented by Rapsodo. Rapsodo has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use Rapsodo data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. The Rapsodo National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. To check out the Rapsodo National Player Database, go to rapsodo.com slash national database. All right, Joe, uh, like I mentioned, we're a week out from opening day. As you listen to this on Friday, February 12th, it's a little later than that. We're, we're less than a week from opening day. Uh, it's, uh, it's coming quick. Uh, we, uh, we're only doing the one podcast this week. I promise two. Uh, conference previews, all of the rest of our previews, uh, it's, uh, it's become a lot. <laughs> it, it does this to us every year, doesn't it, Joe, that uh, you know, there's just so much that we have to do before opening day that for a while... It just it's, it swallows us up, and and then you look up all of a sudden, and it's like, oh wait, opening day is, is a week away. Yeah, we always like I think like most people in their in their jobs and their daily lives, you have like the best of intentions, and and just know, listeners, uh, that as as much as as Teddy and I are doing in the preseason to get you ready for the season, we would love to do five times as much. Like we we have for every good idea we have, we have five more that we've thought about that seem like good ideas but are not actionable or just can't pull them off in the timetable. So uh, know that we would, we would love to be doing more, but we're, we're doing everything we can to, to get you ready. And occasionally that means we end up, you know, having a podcast where we just can't get it scheduled or can't get it, can't get the time for it. So that uh, will just happen from time to time. I will throw something back to you real quick because we have spent the last couple of weeks uh, with our heads down, basically in our laptops, just trying to get preview content finished it's a, it's a really important time to have really good background content on while you're typing. So some people, for, this, for some people, this would be music. I'm not really, I, I have trouble listening to music while I'm trying to, trying to write. I know you, Teddy, have mentioned that, that you, you, you do have music oftentimes, but I know you also are watching things a lot of times. And I have found that as much as I enjoy college basketball games, um, that has been helpful the last couple of months. Uh, college football games during the fall are great, although we're not as intensely writing in the fall typically, so there's that's a little different. But um, I found what I think might be the best sports-related content to have on in the background, and that might be tennis. Now, I'm a tennis fan, so like I am predisposed to being interested in having that be my background content because I I do enjoy tennis. Shout out to Nick Kyrgios, my favorite player on tour right now, but, um, you know... I think it's not just that. So for one, tennis matches are kind of lengthy. So you can kind of just check in and check out and check in and check out. And you can kind of see how the scoreline is pro- progressing. There's also not a lot of idle chatter from the announcers because they don't really talk during the points. And then furthermore, the sound is pretty pleasing. Like you get the bounce on the court then the smack off the racket and the bounce off the court and the smack off the racket. And then like every, you know, so often the crowd like kind of politely applauds. And I, I think it's kind of similar to people who watch golf and really enjoy like taking a nap to golf because it sounds nice. I think it's kind of similar, but something about the combination of the pace of it 
and the sounds, I think has really allowed tennis and the Australian Open this past week specifically to kind of be my soundtrack for finishing conference previews. You know, that's an interesting one. I uh, am not predisposed <laughs> to watching tennis. Uh, I, I do think that when I'm looking for a sporting event to have on in the background, what I have found is that what I really want is something that, A, I understand the rhythms of. Uh, so tennis for me, as someone that doesn't really watch it, would be tricky. I would eventually get the hang of it, but that would be one where I would walk in and, and not really know like when I needed to look up and when I didn't. Uh, so that, that, that's a problem there. But so I, I want to know the rhythms. I, and I want the rhythm to be relatively slow. This is a problem I have found with basketball is, you know, when the NBA came back in the bubble last summer, they were playing games throughout the day. And I was like, Oh, like Zion's playing. Like, that's interesting. Like, let me see what, what Zion looks like in a Pelicans uniform right now. And I looked up and I was like, wait, who are these players? And then why is this moving so fast? And I like, this is when you're actually watching a game, does the NBA game move like incredibly quickly? No. But if you're like half, you know, like less than half watching, uh, Things are things are moving pretty quickly, and uh, so basketball is not optimal for me. the The best sport by far is soccer. Uh, it's it moves at a pace that I very much understand. Uh, there are a million leagues on ESPN Plus. Like I can watch back catalog of soccer, uh, you know, so readily. Um, very very, and, and pick whatever I want to, you know, not whatever I want, but within reason, you you can be, you can be choicey and still, you know, have plenty of it. And uh, I I think the pace is, is is good. Um, Again, maybe if you're fully watching, this isn't a problem for me, but maybe if you're fully watching soccer, you might find it to be a slow, it's slow pace to be problematic, but uh, I I find that to, uh, to be great. The, you know, baseball works incredibly well uh, as well. And so I, I, during the summer when, you know, you could watch new MLB games, like I would usually watch an MLB game in the morning, a soccer game in the afternoon, a couple soccer games. Um, right now it's, uh, it, it's almost like 90% soccer. I would say if, if I am watching anything. It's a great point about basketball. Um, you know, I watch college basketball because I like college. I watch a lot of college basketball. That's part of the reason that works for me. Uh, but I will admit, um, that is kind of one of my issues with them is the games are pretty short as they are, which is a feature. If you're just trying to like watch a game and get on with your day, it can be a bug though, when you're kind of half watching and like you turn the game on, you kind of watch the first couple minutes of it. And then you kind of put your head down and start working on something and you look up and you're like, Oh, there's six minutes left in the first half. And I have not watched like a single second of it. So I can't tell you what's going on here. So it can kind of get away from you a little bit. So there is that, but, um, but generally I found it to be, to be good because I, I just, I enjoy it. So uh, soccer is a good one, but I think I'm in a place with soccer where you are with, with tennis. So different strokes, no pun intended for different folks. <laughs> Soon enough, we'll be able to, to just gorge on college baseball replays. Uh, right. And if you're, if you're the kind of person that doesn't need the event to be perfectly live, 
which I think Joe and I both are in the same boat on that, that that's not necessarily what we need. Uh, you know, there's, there's about to be a ton of that. Uh, well, next week, one of the, the preview pieces that you can look forward to is uh, Joe's guide to, to streaming college baseball this year. So uh, there'll be a lot of ESPN plus on there. I am, I am quite certain of that or uh, technically SEC network plus or ACC network extra, but also a lot of ESPN plus. So ESPN plus not a sponsor, but if you want to be, uh, you can reach me at teddy.cahill at baseballamerica.com. Uh, you can follow Joe and me on Twitter as well. Our DMs are open at Ted Cahill at Joe Healy BA. I expect the checks to come rolling in any minute now. I hope so. Uh, despite the fact that this podcast is dedicated to a league that you won't see much of on ESPN Plus, and that is the Pac-12. Uh, and I promise not to complain too much about how I'm going to watch Pac-12 games th- this year. But uh, that's why we're bringing John Savage on to talk about UCLA. The Bruins are, uh, of course, favored in the Pac-12 this year, enter the season ranked number two in the country. Uh, just a generally very interesting team, an awful lot of talent back, starting, of course, with Matt McClain at shortstop, preseason first-team All-American shortstop Matt McClain, uh, and, and then the, the pitching staff back uh, w- with an awful lot of talent as well. Uh, and, and the lineup, it's, uh, it's an incredibly deep team. We talked about that on the, the Top 25 podcast, just how much, uh, when Joe and I were breaking it down, just how, how much there was to like about UCLA. Not a lot of questions, a lot of really good talent, uh, some good experience as well. It's not just you know banking on young players to take steps forward. There is some of that. Uh, that's true for every team around the country. But you look at Zach Petway, that's a guy who's done an awful lot of pitching on the weekends for UCLA already. Um, you know, at the back of the bullpen, you got Mora. Um, you know, there are just a lot of guys with a fair amount of experience uh, sprinkled throughout the team as well. And, um, you know, they're going to defend, they're going to pitch, just an awful lot to like about the Bruins. So I'm excited to uh, to get into that with uh, with John Savage and, uh, I know you are as well, Joe. It's, uh, you know, we, we've talked about them before. It's a very intriguing team as we look towards 2021. No doubt about that. And I think what stands out to me, a couple of things that, that you said, what stands out to me is is kind of the depth and, and the versatility of this team. It's a team that, you know, sometimes I say this and I kind of mean it more as a shorthand versus meaning it in a literal sense, but I truly mean it when I say that they can beat you in a lot of different ways where, if they need to throw a bullpen game, like Coach Savage, you'll hear him mention in the interview, they build their pitching staff from the back a lot of times. And so they can beat you with a bullpen game. And, oh, by the way, their starters are all really good and experienced, and uh, they can they can win games that way. And and while few UCLA offenses, 2019 accepted, because that, that offense actually was an offense that could kind of bang with you, um, this team can do some of that. They're, they're, they're not often the type of team that, that does that kind of as their um, – is their primary way of scoring runs, but they can do that. And there's just a lot of athleticism, um, you know, up and down the lineup. And I'll be fascinated to see what new guys emerge because it'd be really easy for them to kind of just roll the balls out there and go with the same groups, group of guys that we've seen the last couple of years, or at least last year in particular, I guess there was a decent amount of turnover after 19, but they, every time I've talked to coach Savage since 
uh, the start of last year, he's talked over and over again about some of the younger guys they have on this team that just haven't had a chance. So I'm, I'm interested to see that as well. So the depth might actually be even greater than what we what we see now. And, and that to me is just uh, fascinating. And if you're a Pac-12 team, probably frightening. Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, there, there's an awful lot to like about that team. But yeah, if you're an opponent looking at them across the diamond, uh, <laughs> you probably don't feel quite the quite the same way as, as you do if you're a fan of UCLA or, or a neutral observer. Well, there's a lot to get to uh, with Coach Savage. So uh, let's get to that interview here in a second. But first, check this out. Today on the Baseball America College podcast, we're excited to be joined by UCLA coach John Savage. Coach, it's uh, it's an exciting time around college baseball. Just a week to go before opening day, I'm sure your hopes, like everyone else's, are pretty high uh, for, for the season. Everybody's excited. You know, it's just been such a, a grind, really, since last March and you know, the shutdown and then you have the summer uncertainties and then you had the fall and, you know, the protocols and the protocols pick up again in January. And, you know, it's just going to be fun to see a different team, really. And, uh, you know, everybody's at a different level, probably of of hours and how much they put into things. So I think, you know, college baseball is older without question. There's a lot of older players, a lot of draft eligible players, but at the same time, you know, many of these guys don't have a lot of reps and, you know, they're, they're, the level of play, will, I think, may be, you know, something to look at early on in the season and, and then certainly will get better as the season progresses. But we are certainly excited and looking forward to the 19th. Absolutely. Well, before we really get into it about the uh, 2021 Bruins, you guys yesterday uh, on Wednesday uh, of this week announced uh, a new facilities project there uh, at Jackie Robinson Stadium to to add a, a practice diamond. Uh, can you just tell us about that project and, and what it's going to mean to to the program? Well, I think any any add to any facility is a you know a plus for any any program. So this is just a going to be a really, really nice practice facility, uh, you know, basically a half infield with uh, bullpen and, and lighting, and it's going to be all turf, and it was really paid by, you know, John Bronca and, and Rodine Gifford, and it's going to be called the Bronca Family Field, and we had a bunch of major leaguers step up, uh, Garrett Cole and Troy Gloss and Brandon Crawford, Chase Utley, Eric Karros, and uh, just a lot of Bruins stepped up. Um, some alumni also have contributed. So we're just um, ecstatic, really. We, we need space. Uh, we need another infield to, to work, you know, to work, uh, you know, P PFP and base running and just have another usage, really, for a field. And it'll be turf, which, we, you know, we do play on turf against the Oregons in the Washington. So that will be nice. And then all, it'll also be connected. Teddy with the VA, uh, which is, you know, is a, is a nice little combination with the veterans. They're going to be able to use the project in, in any way they, they would like. Um, and so it's, it's, it's kind of a joint venture, really. Um, but we have, you know, we have paid for it and it's going to be ours, basically. And uh, it's going to be right next to the Gifford uh, hitting facility. And, and uh, you know, out on the West, we, we cherish anything we can get. And uh, certainly this facility will be a great addition to our program and it's a big player development piece and, you know, possibly, uh, you know, uh, a, a place where 
Uh, eventually, we'll, we're going to build a clubhouse that will be connected to it, uh, which will be very, very nice. You'll be uh, you know, rolling out to the, to the practice field uh, along with our hitting facility, which we still believe is one of the nicest in the country. And, uh, you know, we just can't thank all the people that have contributed to that. So that's obviously all big news going into um, what is expected to be a big season for you guys out there. And I think a lot of the excitement around this team starts with what you have back on the mound. So I'm curious, first, uh, what does it mean to have a veteran like Zach Petway to lead the rotation, just a guy who's as, as steady as he is? And then how have you and your staff gone about managing the depth you have there because you have everybody back, but, but I know from yeah. talking to you earlier this offseason, you're also pretty excited about some of the younger guys you have in there. Yeah, we really are. I mean, uh, pet, you know, pets, uh, a, a, a week or two away. He, he looked like he won't be pitching on that first weekend, but he is completely healthy. Uh, he's, he's throwing, he's throwing bullpens. We're taking it, you know, pretty slow with him. He, he just had a little minor hiccup uh, during the summer. Uh, but, you know, we love Petway. We love his competitiveness. Um, anybody that's faced him knows that this guy's a competitor. Uh, it's not lightning stuff, but it, it's gotten better really, uh, over the years. I think it's, you know, it's in that 88 to, to 91, 92 range and high, high pitchability. And, and he got off to a, a tremendous start last season, beat, you know, he beat Riverside, beat St. Mary's, beat Oklahoma state. And then, and then he beat Vanderbilt, um, in the first four games and he was really rolling and pitching very, very well and gotten stronger. So he'll be back clearly. Um, we like the, you know, the rest of the, the starting crew. Uh, we still have a, some competition going on and we'll get through this weekend, but you have Jared Karos and Jesse Bergen, Nick Nestrini, Sean Mullen, Jake Som, Jake Brooks are really the guys that are on the forefront of the, of the rotation. We love our bullpen. Uh, our bullpen has always been a big part of our strength and we really work uh, from, from backwards a lot of times. And, you know, we got Max Ratchick and we, of course, we have Kyle Mora and, and, and Michael Townsend back. And, you know, we just have a lot of different pieces, Adrian uh, Chidez and Danny Caldwell and, uh, you know, just a lot of different guys, a lot of different looks. Um, and so we're excited about our, our pitching depth. Um, we really like our young freshmen. Uh, you're talking about Max Ratchick. You're talking about Jake Brooks, Kenji Polaris, Carson Hamro and Chris Aldridge, you know, I mean, five really, really good talented freshmen that, will contribute uh, on this team and certainly will will fall into, you know, probably bigger roles uh, as the years go on. But uh, we, we like Bergen and Nestrini and Mullen and, you know, those and Petway of course are, are really, you know, three, four older, really good pitchers uh, that can compete at, at really at, at any level, um, you know, that we're looking forward to them progressing and getting better throughout the season. And then, you know, Jared Karros uh, had two really good starts last season um, against Loyola and Pepperdine. And he's, I mean, his, his stuff is really, really jumped and, you know, he's a strike thrower by nature. So, um, you know, we're looking for command. We're looking for competitiveness. We're looking for pitchability. We're looking for, you know, we're looking for everything. Everybody else is secondary command, be able to hold runners, uh, you know, be able to change speeds, own the change up all those things that really make up uh, our, you know, pitching description, uh, we're looking to, to, to mold these guys into guys that can really pass the baton and, and get, get the ball to the bullpen and, and, uh, you know, build that depth. Is this uh, a deeper group than you've been around at least in a while, or, you know, you've had so many good pitching staffs over your career yeah. at UCLA and, and elsewhere that, that you've been, 
is, is this is this one of the deepest you've seen or you know is is it too yeah. early to make those kinds of comparisons? I think it's I think it's a little early to tell. You know, we we really really pitch well in nineteen. I mean, we pitch as well I think as anybody out there, and we were off to as good a start in twenty as as really anybody on the mound. I mean, just look at the numbers; they can tell you that story. And uh, we've had some you know elite staffs. Um, you know, it goes back to you know eleven twelve years ago really that that guys were you know leading the country in ERA and wins and you know, whip and, and different things. And, you know, so it's hard to tell. Uh, I think there's more hard throwers, <laughs> I guess you would say, but I guess you could probably say that across the whole country. Uh, there's a lot of velocity. Uh, it doesn't make a pitcher, certainly, but um, I do see more velocity uh, on our staff. Um, you know, I think you're seeing a lot more, you know, 88 to, to 94s. Uh, we don't have the high 90 guys, but, you know, we have, you know, we have pitchability guys and, you know, there's plenty of fastball and, and, and command and, you know, the ability to pitch, you know, in the stretches as well as the wind up and just game management stuff. I mean, we really thrive on that and preach that and, and really take pride in that. So, you know, it's, um, you know, you, you never know what you have until you go out and do it. Um, we felt really good the last couple of years where these guys were and where they're heading, but it came to a screeching halt. And uh, I think everybody's a little, you know, let's see where these guys are at because everybody's going to respond differently coming out of the pandemic. And, but, you know, we've had, you know, we've had plenty of time to ramp up and, and certainly the stuff is there and uh, we'll see if, uh, you know, the command and the depth and, you know, everything will, will lay itself out. And then the health is, as you guys know, health is a major, major factor in this thing. And, you know, you just don't know how these guys are going to respond coming out of, you know, what they've come out of. And, and that's, that could be said across the whole country. I just hope there's not a lot of injuries, uh, you know, that pop up in March and April throughout the country. And, and that's, I think the fear everybody has a little bit just because of, you know, the, the usage and the lack of really. And so it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out, but we certainly like our depth and, and uh, you know, we feel like uh, we have depth in, in, in each class. Matt McLean is, is a name that I think a lot of folks will recognize, whether it's from, you know, his prospect status coming out of high school, his high drafting out of high school, and now his UCLA career. And he's been on quite a journey, um, you know, in, in terms of, of becoming the player he is now and is going into to 2021. So tell us a little bit about his development, what you've seen from him lately, and, and where you feel like he still has to go. Yeah, I mean, Matt, Matt's a, an excellent person. I mean, he, he's such a baseball rat i mean this guy loves being on the field every day uh loves loves playing defense loves hitting in the cage loves you know lifting in our weight room at the ballpark he loves you know being on the field loves being with his teammates uh, he's a he's a ultimate team guy and he's the ultimate baseball player really uh you know he was a high profile guy coming out of high school out of beckman high school um you know and you know, he struggled. He struggled in 19. Uh, really one of our few struggles of our entire team. If you look at that stat sheet, you know, he's about the, one of the guys that, that struggled. And, and we won, I think, 50, I don't know, 53, 54 games. And, you know, he, he hit a little bit over 200, but he played every day. Um, you know, we knew we were going to play him every day. Uh, he blew, you know, he, he blew up really again in, 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 the, in the Cape Cod summer, had a really good summer. 
was off to a tremendous start last season. I think he had 20 RBIs in 15 games. And I think Joe saw him in Texas and he was really, you know, becoming the guy that we thought. And, and then, you know, come to a screeching halt. So uh, he had a big summer in Santa Barbara uh, with the Foresters and uh, you know, he's stronger than he's ever been. He's running better. He's throwing better. He's, he's got more impact with the, with the bat. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's seen the ball very well at the plate. The, the strikeouts have gone down, the walks have gone up. It just, you know, it, it's all evolving in front of our eyes. We just, uh, we're looking forward to his junior year and, and not, you know, not putting pressure on himself and expectations, but, uh, you know, and we got, you know, we got a really good history of, of shortstops um, and that helps, you know, with Brandon Crawford and Nico Gallego and Pat Vileka. And of course, Ryan Kreiler, a fourth round pick of, of Detroit. So Matt's, you know, Matt knows the expectations of our shortstop and, and the history of our shortstops. And, um, you know, I think he's really embracing that role and he's a team captain for the second year in a row. And we look Matt to have a, a really a, a big year. Beyond him, there's a, a really deep lineup uh, there for you guys, but there, there are some guys that just be, by nature of the pandemic or injuries or whatever, just haven't had really the opportunity to have some of that breakthrough yet. Maybe a yeah. guy like a JT Schwartz or Michael Curiel, who, who is impressing you uh, that maybe we haven't seen quite as much of yet? Well, I think, I think Kevin Kendall, you know, was off to a really good freshman year, had a, had a pretty big freshman year. He got hurt, um, you know, and then he didn't play uh, last season. Um, we, we really expect Kevin to, to have an impact with the bat. Uh, he'll play center. It looks like Michael Curiali is a very, very talented. I mean, he can run, he can throw, he, you know, he can hit, he, 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 you know, he has power. Um, he can play infield and outfield. Uh, of course, we have JT Schwartz, who was off to a pretty good start last season. He's, he's just kind of a hit guy, um, you know, first baseman. Uh, then you got Mikey, Mikey Perez, uh, who's an ultra-talented utility player that can play short, third, and second. Uh, he's got big tools. Um, people may, may look at that a little funny, but, but the guy can, you know, can, can have major impact with the bat. Uh, he can really, really play defense. Um, he's another guy that can, can run. Um, so him and Matt up the middle, it really is a special, you know, combination. Then you got Noah Cardenas who, you know, had a huge freshman year. Um, I think he hit 375 and, you know, was off to a phenomenal start in college career. And, and he's, you know, he, he scuffled a little bit last season too. Um, he was the one guy that wasn't off to a great start, but, we have a lot of faith in, in Noah. Uh, Jake Moberg is a player uh, that we feel is going to have a breakout year as well. So there's there's all kinds of names and and, and that people on the West certainly are familiar with that uh, that know that are good players that you know they, they need opportunity to play and need a bats and so forth and and uh, so we have a you know like we said uh, we feel like plenty of depth uh, you know and you need depth. Um, now we only have 36 players in our, in our program. We're not in the forties. We're not in the 45. We're not, you know, we really don't believe in, in any of that. And so we're, we're really down to, you know, the, almost, uh, the old, the old maximum number, but, uh, and we, we feel we can practice with that. We feel like we have depth with that. It's all about quality, um, uh, you know, and, and not so much quantity. And, 
And uh, the, the scary part clearly is the, is the, you know, the break, you know, the, the shutdowns, right. The, the COVID. And so you really have to build depth across the whole, you know, you got to build up depth with catchers and infielders and outfielders and pitchers and like you've never done before. So, um, you know, that part of it, we feel like there's plenty of talent on the, on the roster. Do you get the sense that, that maybe it's a situation where this is a year where, where you and your staff are going to be, for lack of a better way of putting it, playing around a little bit more deeper into the year than you normally would? I know you're a program that likes roles, but maybe it's a situation yeah. this year where, where you end up halfway through Pac-12 play and it still feels like you're, you're kind of tooling around with your best group yeah. of guys. I think, I think in certain positions, we, we really want to be, you know, we really want to build roles and we want to build identity as players. And we want to have, we have specific really criterias for positions and so forth. And, you know, so we really want, you know, we want certain guys on the field. I think any coach in America would say that, but, you know, you, you, de- you have to build depth and you have to build, um, you know, depth at each position. So I think there is going to be a little playing around, like you said, you know, in certain spots, um, we hope at certain spots, there isn't a lot. And, and certainly there'll be, you know, matchups and left and right and who's hot and who's not and you know, who's healthy and who, who's not. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of factors that go into lineups, of course, but uh, we, we, you know, we traditionally are, are very consistent with our, with our lineups um, are pretty, um, you know, set uh, on, on guys. Uh, but, you know, th- th- this year, you're right. This year is going to be different. Um, you don't know exactly who will be up and running each and every week due to the test. And you just, you know, hope and, and, and you know, each week, everything, everybody is, is negative and, and is help, you know, to be able to be on the roster. But uh, at the same time, uh, that's why I think with, with so amount of guys, you know, a lot of our guys are getting a lot of reps and, even our bench guys are getting a ton of reps and our bullpen guys are getting a ton of wrench uh, uh, reps. Uh, therefore, you know, they will be ready to play if, if when, when called upon. The PAC 12 has gone through some turnover over the last couple of years. I mean, you just think about what Arizona state lost, uh, you know, in the draft this year, it's, it's remarkable. Yeah. And guys like yeah. Rutschman and Vaughn moving on. What do you see now when you look around the Pac-12 going into the the 2021 season? What stands out to you? Well, I I think, again, I think, I think, I think there'll be some parity. You know, there are a lot of new faces, uh, coaching staffs. Um, You know, I mean, half the league is somewhat new within a year, maybe two years. Um, so there's, there's transition. Uh, it takes a while to build a program. Um, I certainly know that as well as anybody, it it takes time to build your, you know, your identity and your stamp and each year is different. Uh, we, you know, like I always say, we want, you know, we want, we want to, you know, same, same program, but, but different team. And, um, but I do see, you know, last year, uh, there, it was pretty top heavy. I think it was going to be top heavy. Um, you know, ASU had a remarkable team. Arizona, uh, was, was clearly very, very good. Uh, we were very good. Um, I think this year there's a little more uncertainty on, you know, freshmen and, you know, you got, you got your seniors and that are coming back and, you know, it's, it's hard to tell. I mean, it's hard to say, Hey, just because they had a bad year last year or a good year last year, 
you know, where's your team going to go this season? So um, I think everybody, Teddy, is really, you know, waiting to see what what you have. Um, I think everybody, you know, a lot of you know, a lot of people feel good about their returners and, you know, their veterans per se. But a lot of these veterans, you know, if you look at their history of their play, don't don't have as many reps as you know, you'd normally have. So it's it's really hard to, to, to gauge that. But I think. You know, again, uh, you know, Arizona is going to be very, very good. I mean, they had a monster recruiting class. Uh, they will be very good. They got a very good group of returning players. Uh, Arizona State, uh, even though they lost a lot of guys, they're going to be be very good. Um, you know, so it, it's, um, you know, I think the early part of the season will we'll tell a little bit of a story. The first 15 games, like it always does, uh, going into league, uh, you know, who's who's playing well and, and who's off to a good start and who's not. So we will start to wrap up here with the, the most important question we ask all of our guests on the show, and, and that's about your favorite sandwich. So some people have chosen to just describe to us a sandwich they would make at home with the ingredients they have at home. And, and some people choose to tell us about a sandwich they order at a local place they go to and that it's their favorite sandwich. So you can take it any direction you like, but, but John Savage, please describe to us your favorite sandwich. Okay, I think I, I'm as simple as they come. I would say Jersey Mike's uh, number number seven, um, turkey, a uh, little mayonnaise, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, maybe a little lettuce, uh, and that's about it. Um, there, there's nothing more to it than that. I, I would say my other sandwich I like that people probably don't like. I like straight peanut butter with on bread uh, mm. with with no jelly. Um, you know, those are probably my two favorite sandwiches, but um, I think my staff knows that, you know, it's not very, uh, I'm not asking for any bells, bells or whistles, uh, with my sandwiches, pretty, pretty straightforward. And, uh, you know, that, that's what I would say to that, to that question. I think there is certainly something to be said for simplicity. We could probably all, all learn something from, from that there. Isn't it at Jersey Mike's, do they do that thing where after, I don't, haven't had a ton of Jersey Mike's, but after you, you, they make your sandwich, they offer to like, put like that oil and vinegar sauce on it. Um, and I, I'll, I'm pretty simple too with my sandwiches there, but I'll have them do that because it gives it like a little bit of, a right. little bit of, yeah, little bit of right. height. A little oil and vinegar is nice. Maybe a little, little salt and pepper, but yeah, it's um, you know the, the the main ingredients really is the turkey, and yep. uh, you know we're we're pretty simple. Uh, David Berg and myself usually have those probably twice, three days a week um, in the office, and uh, you know. It's just part of our really routine, basically, but uh, nothing, nothing fancy going on here. Well, you're in good company. I think turkey has been probably among the more popular answers. Teddy can maybe uh, remember it differently or the same, but I, I feel like turkey has been a very popular answer, some version of a turkey sandwich, at least. We need to start almost. tracking this, basically. We should, we should have tracked this. <laughs> We're almost too deep in it now like to go back. We should have been tracking this. You're right. That's funny. Well, we uh, we appreciate you taking the time here today, Coach. Um, you know, it's uh, it's going to be an exciting year to follow the Bruins. I'm uh, I'm hopeful that we can can see a lot of baseball out of UCLA, and uh, yep. you know, just excited to see what Matt McLean has to offer. Excited to see what that pitching staff has to offer, and uh, you know, we'll, we'll certainly be following along this spring. Well, we really appreciate it, and, and thanks for all you guys do for for college baseball, and and uh, you know, I just hope that it goes somewhat normal and uh you know we're not gonna have any fans uh for the season which is you know really a difficult 
task uh, for our for our program and, and really for the whole country. But we've seen it in football. We've seen it now in basketball. And it's just uh, the way the 20 and 21, you know, is going to lay out. And we've got to make the most of it. And then hopefully, uh, you know, fans can come back, uh, you know, the following year. Absolutely. I think everyone can uh, can get behind that here. Well, Coach, we, uh, we really appreciate you taking the time here on the Baseball America College podcast. Hey, I really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thank you again to UCLA coach John Savage for joining us here on the Baseball America College podcast. Uh, Joe, I don't want to dwell too much on the, uh, on the sandwich situation here, uh, but we didn't get to, to ask, if you're eating just straight peanut butter on bread, are you going with white bread, wheat bread, some other fancier kind of bread? What, what are you, what are you doing with if you're, if you're just, you, that's the the sandwich or, or the snack you're going for? You know, first of all, I just, I wouldn't, I mean, no shots at, at Coach Savage in his, in his sandwich <laughs> choice. Like it, it is an individual choice, but first of all, I just, I wouldn't do just a peanut butter. Now I'll do peanut butter toast occasionally, um, but that's toast is kind of a different, a different deal. What I would actually probably do if I was in a situation where I needed, I just had peanut butter and I'm like, you know what, I'm, I'm hungry. And, and peanut butter is great, by the way, for, because it is so caloric, like it is a good thing to have. If you're like, I'm hungry right now. I don't have a lot of time to make something and I need to eat something right now. Peanut butter is great for that because of the, the, the calories it has. But if I were in that situation, whatever bread I'm using and I, you know, I, um, I tend to go like some sort of like honey oat bread. Um, because I do like the bread to actually have some flavor profile as opposed to just being plain. But I don't, I don't know that that's so much important for me. I would probably just go one slice though. I would probably just put yeah, the peanut I'm butter. I'm definitely open facing this. Yeah. And just fold it up kind of like a hot dog. And that's probably how I would go about it because that's just a lot of bread with just peanut butter. And I think it could be frankly a dry mouth disaster. If you're not like, if I would have asked him a follow-up, I would have been like, doesn't your mouth get kind of dry and the peanut butter sticks to the roof of your mouth. I mean, that, that does seem like it could be kind of a, if you don't have water with you, that could be a real disaster situation. I'm afraid. Well, that, that's, that's a milk situation, right? Yeah. I just don't drink a lot of like, so I am lactose intolerant. So now I, I do drink almond milk. I don't really mess with the oat milks and stuff like that. Cause not made of money, but, um, I, I so Did I will the have, Super Bowl commercial for Oatly change your mind. Um, no, I would say no, but what I will say is, um, I think people who are mad at the oat milk commercial for being like a non sequitur and being kind of weird, I think have maybe missed the point of what most Super Bowl commercials are. I think we've, we've gotten so used to slick, as you can tell, I have Super Bowl commercial takes. Um, <laughs> I think we've gotten so used to these commercials being so produced and so slick and so clever. And I mean that in both a good and bad ways, clever that I think we've kind of lost the ability to be like, what, that was weird. And understand that that's kind of what they're going for here. My other take on Super Bowl commercials, since we're in the neighborhood, everybody every year complains about the commercials weren't good this year. I hear this every year. The commercials weren't good this year. The commercials weren't good this year. I think two things are happening there. One, the average commercial you see day to day on TV is way better than it was 15 years ago. And so I think, our bar for what we think Super Bowl commercials should be has risen to an unreasonable place because we get good commercials in our day-to-day lives. And then secondarily, I just think we misremember 
how good the commercials are from start to end. Like there are every year there's maybe what one or two commercials that people will remember five years from now. And that's always the case. Like every, not every commercial has to be good to make it a good commercial year, but every year I think we do a bad job of taking into account that these aren't all going to be good. There's going to be some that are good, some that are meh and some that are, that aren't, are going to miss the mark. And that's just, doesn't make I'll, it. A I'll throw year. two additional like factors into it. One companies are trying really, really hard to produce a Super Bowl commercial and they're probably trying too hard mm. uh, in a lot of cases. And so that leads to some over the top things that, you know, maybe people don't, don't appreciate. And then the other thing is that you random individual are not in the market that every commercial is trying to hit. So the commercial that you like might be different than the commercial that your parent likes or then that your little cousin likes or whoever, you know, like everyone has their own market uh, that, that the Super Bowl is, is targeting because everyone watches the Super Bowl. That is a, a great point. Case in point quickly, because I know we, we actually need to talk back 12 here. <laughs> I One of my favorite commercials was the Bud Light commercial that was the uh, Legends of Bud Light, because not only am I of an age now where I remember a lot of these previous commercials, but I was also like a sports radio listener when I was in high school and into college. And a lot of these commercials, like the guy who would sing the real men of genius jingle, I remember that kind of stuff. But I can, to your point, if you're someone who isn't watching a lot of sports TV or listen to sports radio, or you're just a younger person or even an older person that wasn't in that kind of demographic that hit, you're right. You would go, who are these people? Like, why did they spend money to like, like, yes, Cedric the Entertainer was in it and people might have recognized him. But other than that, they're not going to really recognize, like, why are these people important? But if you do recognize why those people are important, you'll be like me and think, oh, this is fun. Like, I get to revisit kind of all these characters. So I think that that, that is a, a good point by you there. All right. So returning uh, from the Baseball America advertising podcast <laughs> to, uh, to the Baseball America college podcast to, to talk UCLA and Pac-12, uh, you know, the, the, the Bruins, I don't know, we have a lot still to learn about every team. I think to John Savage's response to, to my question about who you're looking to break through, that wound up being much of the lineup, which, uh, you know, I guess when you think about it is probably pretty well true there. Uh, with, with the exception of McLean and Cardenas, I, I think a lot of the rest of those guys didn't get to see as much time in 19, and then last year was cut short. Uh, I'm I'm very intrigued to what it to see what that looks like uh, when they they put that all together. Uh, that said, I mean I, this is UCLA; it's going to go as far as its pitching and defense take it in in many respects. So, what what's happening on the mound? is uh, at least as interesting, if not more so, even if we know a little more about those guys. But Joe, I mean, you you did some UCLA writing in the off season, the Matt McClain story, you did their fall five questions piece. What, what do you think is the mo- more interesting, uh, more, I guess, more interesting is the wrong way to put it. What do you have more uh, questions about uh, go, going into this season, the, the lineup or pitching staff? Well, so here's the thing. It kind of depends on what, how we define that. So I know, I know that like it's a, a trope of just taking the question and like casting it aside, but, but I do think that matters because my question is for as much as we like 
even setting Petway aside, although Coach Savage did say that, you know, he's a little bit behind there. So assuming he gets back to what he is, like I'm even setting him aside, but, you know, Nick Nestrini and Jesse Bergen are, are two arms that I like, that you like, that scouts like, haven't thrown that much, right? And when we last left it last year, Nick Nestrini was, was really kind of struggling and Jesse Bergen had his struggles the year prior. And so I do kind of have questions about, I mean, he clearly he likes Jared Karras a lot, but, you know, could that rotation, if one of those two guys um, struggles, like how long do they wait to kind of make a move? And then who does that move go to? And then how much confidence should we have in whoever that is that kind of slots in there? So that's where I have the question on the pitching staff. And it's a matter of, okay, do you find that more concerning than the concern in the lineup, which just is, you know, once you get past, um, the top guys in the lineup. So, you know, your Matt McLean's and your, your JT Schwartz, and I'll even throw Curiali in there because what we saw from him last year was, was kind of exactly in that small window, what we were looking for from him, but they, they do have some guys who are glove first, or at least versatility. I think about Mikey Perez, like a nice player who's kind of versatility is his calling card more so than tools. Um, can it be a lineup that maybe goes through some, some droughts? Um, but what I don't worry about that is because the depth is so good I do think they are going to be able to kind of cycle guys through a little bit in the lineup. And there's so much versatility there that you can play the game of, okay, Kevin Kendall in center field. Um, maybe his bat hasn't come around like we'd hoped. Let's throw Curiali out to center field and let's put somebody else in the infield or, you know, vice versa. You know, we you can move Kevin Kendall into the infield if we need to replace an infielder and Mikey Perez can play all three infield positions. And, um, you know, they really like their backup catcher, Darius Perry. Let's put him in a DH or throw him at first base or something like that. They have so much positional versatility that they're not going to have to just keep the same nine guys in there if they end up in a situation where they need to move some pieces around. So I'm not really sure where I come out on which of those worries me more. I think the more plausible scenario is probably the second one where like inevitably you're not just going to have the same nine guys all season. I, I do think as much as they want to have roles, and as much as they would like to have basically the same nine all year, I just don't think that's realistic. But I will also say, um, as, as much as I like the, the second half of their rotation with Nestrini and Bergen, like those guys, there isn't just a lot of proof in the pudding yet. And that's not their fault. That's just the fault of injuries and then also a COVID season getting canceled. So we'll have to wait and see on that. But uh, those are the two places my mind goes in terms of if you, if you really want to, and we are nitpicking, let's be clear. Um, but if you really want to nitpick this, that's where my biggest concerns would be. Yeah, these are absolutely first world problems. Um, there are a lot of teams that would love to, to have these kinds of problems uh, such as they are. So yeah, it, it's just going to be something to watch over the season, how and which ones of these UCLA players develop and break through uh, the most. I, you know, I, I have no doubt that some of them will. I, I'm just not quite sure which ones are going to be the biggest stars this year. Um, you know, you feel really good about McLean, but who else is going to uh, going to emerge as as the uh, the All Americans on this Bruins roster? And uh, you know, we'll just have to uh, we'll have to see where that takes us uh, this spring. Uh, you know, Joe, let's let's move on to the rest of the pack here. Um, Arizona is the, uh, the other team from the conference that is ranked. Talked about them a decent, a 
bit, I believe, in that Top 25 podcast as well. And when Jay Johnson was on the pod, um, I want to say that was in May. So obviously things have changed since then, but uh, the returners haven't really. And you know, so they're, uh, they're an interesting team that Joe likes an awful lot and I like probably a little bit less, but still very much. Uh, there's a lot of upside there. The rest of the conference, though, things are going to be a little different. Arizona State, we have just on the outside of the top 25. It's a completely different profile, though, this year than what the Sun Devils were last year when they were so good offensively, led by Torkelson and and that whole crew that now has been drafted and moved on. And now Arizona State returns the pitching staff. And so... You know, they're, they're going to have to be a little more of a pitching and defense team, at least early on in the season. Uh, so interesting to watch that develop. And then you have, you know, a whole host of, of teams in the middle of the conference that some of them are going to break out. Some of them are going to be kind of mediocre. Some of them aren't going to live up to expectations. I, there are like five or six teams that kind of fit in that mold. And, um, you know, good luck ordering them. I mean, we we did, Joe did in the 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 preview, but you know, talking about Stanford, Washington, USC, um, you know, to to an extent, you you can throw, uh, you you can certainly throw Cal in, and to an extent, you can throw Oregon into that as well. And you know, some of those teams are are really gonna gonna hit this year. Like they're they're, they're probably both literally offensively they're going to hit, but they're also, they're going to hit on some stuff this year and some of them aren't and trying to sort out which ones are which right now. I have a really hard time doing that. Uh, yeah, same. Welcome to my um, <laughs> December trying to write this preview or January, whenever it was, I started on this thing. Yeah. Uh, Arizona is interesting. I'll just touch on a, a couple of things there. What I think about with Arizona is I think we feel a, a certain amount of certainty about the lineup. I mean, the outfield could be one of the most productive in the country, you know, Holgate, Dante Williams, Mac Bingham. Um, they really like Daniel Susak behind the plate. Um, they've, you know, they've just, they've got guys that can hit all over that, that lineup. So the thing is, is the pitching side. And I think you can start, you really are now starting to see the makings of a, of a good pitching staff. And certainly you like that they have net Nate Yeski on board now as one of the better pitching coaches in the country that helps. But when you look at Chase Silts, that's a hard name to say for me. Chase Silseth, uh, junior college transfer, big arm, Garrett Irvin, Chandler Murphy, Quinn Flanagan, all guys who have been in the program now a while. And while the ceiling, particularly on those latter guys, once you get past Silseth, the ceiling there is a little bit lower. But the thing about it is, as I was doing this preview, I actually started to like Arizona more because there aren't, especially now with Arizona State, having lost so much of their offense, there aren't a ton of offenses that really jump out at you at like, Hey, these guys are going to mash. And I just think if you're a pitching staff like Arizona that has guys who can eat innings, guys who aren't walking people, guys with good enough stuff. Like I think that's probably enough in a lot of weekends, honestly. And they have that, they've got some certainty, they've got veterans, they've got some guys with good stuff. And, and like, I just think that's going to do enough to kind of make them a, a top 25 program this year. Um, I will so yes, there is a lot of uncertainty about that. I mean, when you, when you start to talk about Stanford wasn't very good last year, but they're talented. Like how much, how much, how much of a step forward do they take? And you like some of the pieces on Washington, but uh, you know, there's still a lot of guys with Washington that we're still kind of waiting on to break out. And, you know, they lost Stevie Emanuel as their best pitcher and 
we don't know what to make of Oregon State or USC, which looked pretty good last year, but they've got a lot of, um, you know, kind of recent history to buck against to really have a lot of belief in that. And then, and then Cal is, you know, kind of in a similar boat to Stanford in terms of a slow start, but, but kind of talented. So I don't know if you have my projected order of finish in front of you, um, but I was going to turn the question back around on you a little bit. And I was going to say, the easy question would kind of be, who do you have the most confidence in beyond, let's just cut it off after Arizona State? Who do you have the most confidence in? So you can answer that question if you want. But the question I'm kind of more interested in is based on the order I have them, who is the team that you think, whether you think a team moves from the bottom to the middle or from the middle to the upper tier, is there a team on here when you looked at my projected order of finish that made you think that they were going to make me look silly or have at least a chance to make me look silly once it's all said and done? Oregon State. Yeah. And I I don't even think that you're wrong about Oregon State. You have Oregon State sixth. I didn't tell you to move Oregon State I didn't I don't even think I asked you like walk me through that because you know so that in sixth you have them behind UCLA the two Arizona schools and then in fourth you had Stanford and fifth you had Washington and you and I talked probably far longer than was necessary about whether Stanford or Washington should be the fourth best team in this conference um, and we just are going to probably see that differently like I like what Stanford's upside is. I just, for whatever reason, UW is one of those schools that I just perennially am like, you know what? I think UW is going to be pretty good this year. And sometimes I hit on that and sometimes I don't. Uh, So we'll see where that goes this year. But then Oregon State at six, I mean, it's a really hard team to get your mind wrapped around, at least for me. They were five and nine last year. And it was an okay five and nine, I guess. Like they played a decently hard schedule. Uh, they went to Starkville. They had their their tournament in uh, in Arizona. Um, they hosted UCSB in the final weekend, but you would still kind of expect them to be a little better than five and nine. And then you can get excited about Kevin Abel coming back, but then you also have to realize that okay, Kevin Abel's back, but Christian Chamberlain was amazing last year, and he's gone now. So even if you get the best of Kevin Abel, I just don't know how much better that is than Christian Chamberlain was a year ago. It's better, but is it so much better that it's really moving the needle that much? You know, to me, that's just a one for one, uh, you know, switch and good for Oregon State for being able to make it. But it would be a whole lot better if you could add Abel and keep Chamberlain. Um, So that there's that. But then you're looking at can Connor Jerpy uh, take a step forward? Can Jake Fennings take a step forward? Those are guys that have the ability to do it, but they they now just need to take those steps. And will they do so? You know, hard to say. And then offensively, they were disappointing a year ago. Um, are they going to be better offensively? I, they're going to need Troy Clanch to be better uh, than he was a year ago, I think. Um, it's not going to be the world's most offensive team. I, I think that's just the baseline is that this is not going to hit, be a team that hit as well, hits as well as they did in 17 and 18. Um, you know, obviously they're not going to be that good, but the, they're also that those teams were pretty offensive that kind of got covered up a little bit 
because the pitching staffs were also so good, but they were, they were good offensive teams. I don't know that that's what this is going to be. I think it's going to have to be a little more on the pitching and defense right now. Uh, but I, I think that if things come together for them with some of these young pitchers, or if some of the, the hitters take steps, uh, you know, I, I do think Oregon state has the ceiling. I just don't know how good we can feel about them hitting that ceiling. And that's why they're picked right in the middle of the conference. Uh, but again, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we looked up at some point this season and Oregon state was, you know, number 20 in the top 25. I'm actually glad you gave that answer because it was, um, that was one where I kind of wanted, I kind of wanted you to, to, to kind of reaffirm in my head where I was like, you know, Oregon state's really got a chance to, to be one that makes me look bad. Not that it's, I don't know. Cause uh, you know, it's six to six. I didn't pick ninth, I guess, but um, so that was, that was, I was glad to hear you say that actually you, you made a good case for it. And I, I, I agree with a lot of that, but you're right. It's just like, there's so much uncertainty in this part of the pecking order that it's just tough. I would also throw, I mean, really you could make this argument of, you could really, we could go down this entire list and come up with reasons why each team from six through, you know, certainly through nine um, could make us make, make my order look a little bit silly. I think there's, it's worth putting in a quick word here for Cal. Um, offensively, I have questions, although they do get a little bit healthier. They bring back shortstop Sam Wesniak, you know, 10 homer guy in 2019. Darren Baker is back. Quentin Selma uh, is a player I like a lot, third baseman. So they do have some pieces there offensively, but the arms are good. Um, you know, Grant Holman, Sean Sullivan are both good prospects, good arms. Um, if those two guys really kind of take big steps and become real dudes in the Pac-12, like it really does change the complexion of what we can expect from Cal. And again, it's all on a scale, right? Like I'm not saying Cal could go from eighth to being the second best team in the Pac-12, but who knows? I'm saying more like Cal could be the team that you know, we have predicted eight and they end up being the team that's kind of on the periphery of the at-large discussion when it's, when it's all said and done and, and just misses, for example. So, yeah, I think Cal and Oregon, both there at eight and nine, just, I'm not, yeah, I, I agree. They're not going to suddenly be the second best team in the conference, but if they finished fourth, you know, I, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be shocked by that at all. And yeah, at that point, you're probably in the, in the bubble discussion. You, you went into Cal more than I have because you had to write this. What is your sense on what went wrong in 2020? Because I, I went back, like when I, when I went to start building our field of 64, uh, you know, I always reopened last year's field of 64. So I remember how I like format things. And I discovered that Cal was a projected regional team last year. They went five and 11. Yeah. I mean that, yeah, it, it was, I think part of, so I think there's two pieces here. So I think part of that was probably just us giving them a lot of benefit of the doubt because Cal has, I think sometimes we think about Cal well, as a program that almost got cut. And, you know, we, we think about some of the challenges Cal has, and I think that fails at times to give them enough credit for kind of picking themselves up by the bootstraps and being a relatively consistent program. And so I think, we gave them a little benefit of the doubt there, which is partially earned. But I think the short answer for what went wrong is that, you know, it was an offense that lost Andrew Vaughn and Cameron Eden and Corey Lee. And those guys combined for quick math, 38 home runs the previous year. And, oh yeah. And by the way, I just mentioned Sam Wesniak. He's going to miss all of 2020. So right there, you're talking 48 home runs just gone from the lineup. And so uh, I think that's the short answer. I mean, the team, 
hit last year 226. I mean, that's not going to cut it. Um, and so some of that maybe comes back in the right direction now uh, with the healthy Wesniak plus, you know, the two best hitters from last year, three best hitters actually from last year are back now, even though the numbers aren't as good as Vaughn and, and Eden and Corey Lee, but they've got Selma and Baker back. Those are the two best hitters. Grant Holman is a two-way guy. He's starting, he's thought of as more of a starting pitcher, but uh, he's also, you know, kind of a physical guy at the plate. So, you know, there's hope maybe he's a little bit better, but it, it's going to come down to how much they hit. Um, now things could really go wrong if, if, if Sullivan and, and Holman, because let's, let's be honest about what they've been so far. I mean, they're both very talented guys, but, but neither of them has really put that season together where you're like, Oh, wow, this is, this is one of the PAC 12's absolute best starting pitchers. So I'm giving them a lot of credit here for that. They haven't necessarily proven out, but I'm just saying that's where the potential is. But so things could go really sideways if the starting pitching also isn't there. But I think the biggest key is that if you assume Holman and Sullivan give you something solid on the weekends and Sam Stoutenborough, by the way, he's the third guy and he's been around a long time, pitched a lot of innings, but if the offense is, I think just, you know, moderately better in 2021 than it was in 2020, I think it's a team that that probably finishes higher than eighth. Eighth almost feels like kind of their bottom. Like it's hard for me to imagine them dipping any further than that. And if, if they hit better, I think it's, it's more of a team that's fifth or sixth versus eighth. But I think we just, we, we just, we just need to see it. I mean, that's all it really is to it. Yeah, it's uh, it's really tricky to sort through this. Um, you know, it, I, I think this is a conference that gets at least four teams into the tournament this year. Um, if you look at the projections, like, and you hear me say that, you're you're gonna say, but Teddy, there are only three Pac-12 teams in your preseason field of 64. And yes, that that's true. But I I think that a fourth, if not a fifth team, will emerge throughout the season. We just had the darndest time trying to figure out what teams that was going to be. And frankly, you know, when we were putting that projection together, I wasn't sure Stanford was going, you know, Stanford is in Santa Clara County in California. And Santa Clara County has had some really intense restrictions throughout the pandemic, such that, um, you know, for a while, they weren't allowing sporting events to be played in the county. So Stanford's various teams, their football team that's affected, their basketball teams that affected, uh, had to go find makeshift homes elsewhere. The football team, it was happening at the end of their season. I think they just wound up playing a road game that was supposed to be a home game or relocating their practices for the week or something like that. The basketball teams were actually uprooted um, and they had to, to travel a little ways away to Golden State's G League team's home to, to play their games and stuff. So when we were going through this, I wasn't sure what Stanford's deal was going to be in that regard. I wasn't sure how much conference games Stanford was going to be allowed to play and all the rest of it. Now, since then, Santa Clara County has relaxed its rules. Stanford is scheduled to play non-conference games. I feel better. Like if we have Stanford as the fourth team in the Pac-12, I feel much better about the idea that Stanford makes the NCAA tournament than I did a month ago. Um, you know, so somewhere you got to, I, I would have to jam Stanford into our projected field of 64. Um, but, you know, again, no matter whether we're talking about Stanford, Washington, Oregon State, USC, whoever's finishing fourth here, I think is probably getting in the tournament. I, I think that there's really strong depth here. 
Um, you know, we can, while we can make cases for the top nine of these teams finishing as high as fourth or fifth, uh, you know, it's that, that doesn't mean that all of those teams are going to be going to hit their ceilings. But I, I still think that the, the conference's top half this year is going to be really solid and, and there, there's going to be good competition probably behind UCLA. I, I think UCLA might, uh, you know, really get a nice cushion. Uh, on second place, but I, I think the rest of the league is is going to be pretty competitive there. It's kind of funny, um, although I guess for if you're a fan of a Pac-12 program, maybe it's like the uh, the tragedy of it versus the uh, this is like the comedy and tragedy masks of of this discussion is that the bottom of the conference. So it's funny when you when you have a, a conference like this where you start to feel kind of mushy about the middle when you're like oh boy, like I don't really know how to rank these teams. Typically what happens in a lot of cases though, is then you start to get down to like nine or 10 and you're like, man, this team is probably better than 10th. Right. But it's because there's just no, it's hard to figure out exactly how they should, they should sort out. So you end up with teams, at the bottom that you, that you believe in their upside more because you know, they're all kind of similar teams in a lot of ways in terms of the questions we have. So I look at the PAC 12 and, you look at the bottom, we, we've referenced number nine, that's Oregon at, at number nine, who did a lot of really nice things and um, showed really positive signs on offense, which has been such a bugaboo for Oregon in recent years. And so you've got them at nine and you've got Washington State at 10. And it kind of broke my heart to put them 10 because um, the end turnaround was impressive. Now, if it would have kept up in 2020 is another question, but they were significantly better in 2020 than they had been. And so you look at the bottom of the conference and the, the bottom of the conference is undoubtedly better than it has been in, in, in several years. So I think this could have been the year in a normal 2021 where some of these teams go out into non-conference and I get the feeling a team like Washington state with as much of a kind of a go-getter as, as Brian Green is like in a normal year, he goes out and, and really challenges his team in non-conference and, and Oregon typically plays a, you know, some challenging stuff in non-conference and this could have been a year where several teams kind of more towards the bottom of the conference go out into non-conference and actually do some things and really kind of help the conference by picking up some wins here and there. When in past years, those programs might've just gotten rolled wherever they went. And that could have really paid dividends for the conference when we start talking about postseason jockeying for position, but you're really going to get limited returns on that this year, because a, a lot of these programs out on the West coast, are really limiting non-conference. They're certainly not really traveling across the country for much of anything. And then furthermore, they're just going to be fewer of those games. So there's not going to be as much of that baked into however we evaluate these teams, the postseason. So the depth here is better for sure. And it just kind of sucks for the conference that they're not really going to get to reap the benefits to as great an extent because they're not going to get to challenge themselves outside of the league as much as they would in a normal year. The other thing that I don't know how to evaluate this particularly is that there's a lot of differences in how falls were conducted within the Pac-12, I think. Um, you know, UCLA had to wait an awful long time. USC, I don't think ever really had a fall. Stanford was very limited. Again, they're working under some very intense restrictions. So teams are just in very different places at this point. And I don't know what to, what that's going to have done for development, what it won't have done for development. Um, it, there's just a lot of uncertainty 
in this conference, but beyond the fact that, you know, we feel very good about UCLA being the favorite. We feel good about Arizona being the, the number two team and, and pretty good about Arizona state being three. And then I, there's just everything else could, could go in a, so many different directions. It's, it's really hard to get a handle on uh, at, at, at this juncture. And I, I'm very interested to see how things play out for them. Uh, and, you know, it, th- there's going to be a lot of, you know, I don't, I don't want to say confusing results early on, but th- there may be some confusing results early on just because, they, again, th- these teams really have to get up to speed in a hurry after not playing or having different kinds of falls than, than you're used to, more so than in other parts of the country. Yeah, we kind of need to make a promise uh, that we are inevitably going to break. But uh, this is definitely going to be a season in the Pac-12 more so than than most. But I think in general, uh, this is this is not going to be the season where it, it's going to make a lot of sense to super overreact to stuff we see really early on in the season because I, I really do think it's going to be it's going to take a while for a lot of the however COVID affected your program. It's going to take a lot of time for that stuff to kind of even out if it ever does, right? Because we've seen in basketball where there were teams that have had had really long pauses at the beginning. We've had teams that had really long pauses in the middle. Now we've got teams that are paused now. And so I, there is going to be some of that kind of stuff. But uh, at some point though, I guess for the most part, it is going to even out a little bit where at least everyone's been practicing now for a while and practicing on a similar schedule. Then I think that's just going to take some time to shake out. So you're right there. I think early in the season, we are going to see some stuff that's going to make us shake our heads and we'll have to kind of temper our, um, you know, takes about what that means, um, understanding that it might end up meaning basically nothing by the time the season ends. Absolutely. Uh, (laughs) It's an annual struggle, but even more important this year, I would say you're you're absolutely right. The the first couple weekends, especially, got to, got to just allow for baseball to be a little weird and this year's baseball to be even, even stranger. So uh, yeah, that's uh, that's a summation of the Pac-12. Uh, there's a whole lot of uh, a lot of uncertainty, uh, a whole lot of need for patience, and uh, it's it's a little confusing. And we expect it to be confusing for several weeks to come. Here, I don't know when I expect to start getting clarity about uh, how the Pac-12 race is going to shake out, but certainly not anytime in February. I would say you know we're we're talking much more like March or April. Um, non-conferences is only going to tell us so much uh, this year, especially. All right. So that's going to do it for us today on the Baseball America College podcast. Uh, We've uh, we've got a lot online for you to check out. All of the conference previews are up by the time you're listening to this, I hope. That's what that's what the schedule says. I I hope we uh we, we've got the last of them up by the, the time you're downloading this on on Friday. So you can check out all 30 of those. Uh, I guess the one caveat is the Ivy League is is not online yet. I'm still waiting for a little more clarity on what the Ivy League situation is before we uh before we do that that preview. But the rest of the conference previews are there. There's still more coming next week. Um, a lot to uh, to digest before opening day, which again is just a week away now, uh, incredibly. Uh, so make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. Favorite podcasting app, it's there, whether you're talking about Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, 
Uh, you can subscribe if you can, rate, review, all of that helps us and we, we greatly appreciate it here. Uh, we are genuinely going to try and do two podcasts next week, Joe. Uh, again, it didn't work out this week, but I, I feel good about our ability to do it next week. Uh, so make sure you are subscribed. We'll be going twice a week throughout the regular season and probably the postseason too. We'll, we'll evaluate that as, as it comes though. Um, you can, uh, can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. Uh, again, make sure to, to check out all the content over on the website. Um, should keep you busy this weekend. We'll be back here next week to talk about opening week, opening day. Uh, that, that'll be an exciting time. Uh, so until then, Thank you again to John Savage for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Rapsodo for presenting the Baseball America College podcast. For Joe, I'm Teddy. We'll see you next time on the Baseball America College podcast.